Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the third night of our, our mission here. Let me go ahead and begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So for the last night of our mission, I want to thank everybody for coming out to, to be with us. Seems like we've retained a good part of the crowd. Anyone new here, um, we welcome you. What we've been doing is going over the passage from Proverbs chapter 9, looking at the different aspects of it. First, beginning by looking at the idea of wisdom building our house and what it means to have a home or a family. Also, then, yesterday, looking at the feast, that wisdom is prepared or feast and what exactly that implied. And today, we see that she has sent out her servants in order to call everyone for the feast. And so the English translation, the RSV, would be, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who is without sense, she says, come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Live, leave simpleness, and live, and walk in the way of insight. Now, Latin, the Vulgate translation, which is the translation from the Hebrew into the Latin, the two main sort of phrases that we're going to focus on deal with these. Sequis est parvulus veniat ad me et incipientibus locuta est, and relinquite infantiam et vivite et ambulate per vias prudentiae, which you can see it right up there. Basically, that we are called to the meal, to the sacrifice, in order to walk in, to give up our childish ways in Fonsiam, and to be able to receive insight, to walk in the way of prudence, to leave behind our naivete and our lack of knowledge of wisdom. Basically, to mature into a wise man or a wise woman. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about today, this, this passage from immaturity to maturity. A passage to wisdom from simpleness or being childlike and how we can do this. Now, of course, as we've been talking about, most of my experience here is working with young people, with college students. And so often when a lot of them come, not all of them, they're about 18 years old and fairly immature, but as they grow older, hopefully by the time they graduate in four or five years, they've left their childish ways and are beginning to become adults. So for instance, when I first got here, there were a group of guys, college guys, who liked to play Pokemon in public, in the cafe. <laughs> so I walked up to the guys and I said, fellows, is this the priesthood discernment group? because you're not going to get a date playing Pokemon in public. So play it by yourself. I don't care what you do by yourself. Let's not, let's not play that in public. And so as we get older, whether it's passing from immaturity in childhood to adulthood, we've got to go through our growing pains. We're going to make mistakes, some mistakes bigger than others. 
And some because of immaturity and lack of knowledge, some because of, well, possibly just stupidity, but we're going to look at some of that today. Now, so I, I want to, this is actually going to probably be probably the more serious night where I try to bring everything together, but I do have a handful of some pretty good stories. Uh, there are so many uh, of just seeing immaturity, mistakes, foolishness over the course of my time here. One I remember, and I'm going to say this because it's my only one really involving a girl. The rest are guys. Sorry, fellas. <laughs> guys did most of the stupid things, but this is how it goes. Uh, we were at this sort of retreat, and there were a couple of young women, and we're with some benefactor's house, and they were, one of them was driving her really nice golf cart, going around the lake and visiting. I think they were trying to go a little too fast, maybe didn't have the weight distributed evenly, and took a curve and just crashed, fell apart, hurt each other, and basically destroyed the golf cart, if I remember correctly, and so worried that they were going to get punished, but fortunately, everyone was merciful. This, of course, is about the dumbest thing any girl's done that, that, that I've been here. Oh, but for the guys. Let's talk about that. Now, actually, the second one actually has a young woman involved in this, too. So it was about Christmas, uh, maybe 2013, 2014, and I was out visiting with a friend on the patio. It's sort of after, campus is closed, it's really nice, it's really quiet. And I'm sitting there and visiting, and I don't know what made me look up, but I saw someone on the roof with red hair. Now, this is going to be the second roof story. I have several roof stories to tell. I'm like, what is someone doing on the roof? Why are they there? And so I was sort of concerned. As, and so I decided, I looked around, I couldn't see anybody, so I went to talk to the police, as I have often done, and I'm sure I will continue to do during my time here. And I said, there is someone on the roof. I am very concerned. And so the cops came, and we walked around the perimeter and didn't see anybody. And I think they thought I was kind of crazy, but I knew that I wasn't. So I walked back into the student center, and this is when the student center is supposed to be closed. I see a group of students there. And I said, what are y'all doing there? Two guys, and there was one girl. And the girl had red hair. Uh, Father, well, we just decided to come in because it was cold outside. I said, well, you idiots on the roof. Uh, yeah. I said, you, you almost got the cops come after you and arrest you. What were you doing? Well... We just kind of wanted to hang out on the roof. I said, if I would have been in my chapel upstairs and I'd have heard some stuff going on, chances are I, if I would have had a gun, would have come out and shot all three of you. <laughs> You'd have been dead. And so one of the guys who did it was a little bit older. And so I kind of talked to him a little bit afterwards and, and he regretted what he did. But this is the kind of lack of thinking and discretion people would have. But the biggest sort of example of a complete lack of discretion, oh, this is probably the, this is one of the only times that I have like generally felt my stomach just sort of heart fall into my stomach. It was a Greek retreat, oh, I don't know, probably about five or six years ago. And there's this activity that we had during Greek retreat that we would like to do, where we get all the guys in one part and the girls in one part, and the girls would, I don't know, tell their stories, light a candle, and eat chocolate cherries or whatever. 
and the boys would do manly things, and, and one of the things that they would do is they would take a can, like a soda can, and they'd, they'd write whatever their sin they're struggling with on the can, and then they'd bring it out to this certain area, and they'd put it there, and they would have like a, a bat. They'd hit the bat. They'd hit it and make the can blow everywhere, and Coke would go everywhere, or Sprite, and it's sort of symbolic of destroying their sin. And so I wasn't there at the time. I was kind of walking around, and I walked up, and I knew what they were doing. There was the campus ministers, not mad. It was Paul George at the time, and a few other people. And I noticed that they were smashing the cans, but not with a, 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 like a sledgehammer, not with a bat, but with a shovel. <laughs> like they would, they would take them to the shovel and go down and hit it like that. And I thought to myself, this is not safe at all. Probably hitting the can with a bat is not safe either. And I just thought to myself, this is not safe at all. Because the, they were hitting it and they weren't wearing gloves or anything. And in the moment that that thought came into my mind, time slowed down. As I watched the guy who hit it go back and the shovel fly out of his hand, through the air, and into a tree. And began to do like that. <laughs> Missing Phil Domang's throat by about this much. And so I said, we almost had a decapitation. <laughs> so I lost, what are you idiots doing? Fortunately, I mean, I remember Phil's eyes were this big. <laughs> and the, 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 the blade was, that, that shovel was right there. Needless to say, that is the last time we did that event. I don't know. I just want to just go to confessions to get rid of your, your, your sin. Why don't we got to do all this stuff? Well, however, though, in these great stories, I have a number of other stories that I could share, but it's actually certain individuals that uh, have a special place in my heart, as you'll see. And so I had a picture in my office it was from a movie uh, called Don Camillo. Don Camillo were a group of a number of books that were written in Italy uh, in the 40s and 50s, later adapted into some pretty funny movies about this priest in Tuscany or northern Italy. Uh, and it was his sort of comedic battles with the, the communist mayor and his friends. And there's a scene in the movie, and I had printed it up from the movie. It's a black and white film. So Don Camillo's at his desk, and he's got a Tommy gun like this. And he has the three, the mayor and his two cronies, at the other end of the desk. And so I'd keep that there, and it was just sort of like, hey, father has a temper sometimes, he gets mad. Well, one time when they were pranking my office, uh, they went and put little tags of the three guys at the, the student center at the time that I most wanted to kill, <laughs> or most would get on my nerves. One of them, when I talked about Bradley yesterday. Now I'm talking, as you're going to see, this all ends up somewhere really, really good. Bradley, we mentioned last night about some of his uh, escapades. Another was a, a great friend, he might even be here, our good friend Jacob Tonglet, uh, who we love. So Jacob, as whatever reason, he decided that it would be a good idea not to shave his beard for a long time, except it didn't really grow out as a beard, it grew out as kind of mange, basically. <laughs> Filthy and disgusting, neck beard and everything. 
At the same time, there's another young man, Charles, who decided to grow a mullet. And it was foul and disgusting, like a big rat's nest on his head. So the students were so disgusted by both of these things, they issued a challenge that whoever play ping pong and whoever would win best or lose the two out of three would either have to shave the beard or shave the mullet and the other person got to do it for them and they couldn't grow it back for a year. And thank goodness, Jacob lost. <laughs> so he had to shave. There's actually a video of it out there, I think, or at least a picture, to shave the beard off his face. But then, of course, Jacob decided to just grow his hair out long for four years, but very, very thankfully, because of that, he made a great Barabbas in the living station of the cross for the times uh, that he was here. And so we really, you know, some good can come out of evil. Uh, but he didn't, he didn't grow a beard at all for the year he was there. But however, the, the individual who has the most special place in my heart is one who, who spent seven wonderful years here, and that's our good friend Treville. Now, this has a very happy ending at the end. So Treville, so many stories of you. You get Paul, George, and I to sit and talk about stories of a Treville. So, so, so wonderful. Just the funny things that Treville did and all of our times of visiting with Treville. So this is my first year here. I start getting text messages from this random number. And as people like to text me that this person was communicating with me that he was a prophet uh, and that he needed to speak to me about uh, whatever prophecy he had, basically something apocalyptic, this destruction was coming in the world. And he started sending me these really disturbing messages. This is back in 2010, before really people texted all the time. And then he started sending me pictures. And one of them was a tsunami destroying Las Vegas. And this is the punishment that is going to come upon the world. So I sort of got freaked out. And that was the first time, not the last, that I had to call the police and told the cops about this. But fortunately, the, the guy quit texting me. I blocked his number. I said, well, how did this guy get my number? And so I asked around, because this was before you passed your cell phone number around, like everybody had your cell phone number. And guess who did it? Treville. This is my first real encounter with Treville. Treville, what are you doing? Oh, this random guy came up and he wanted to talk to the pastor because he had some prophetic messages. No, Treville, don't give my number to anyone. <laughs> Particularly random people. So I hesitate whether to tell this next story because this is the best. This is the best story of my time here. And I'm going to tell it one day. And I'll tell you the context if I get a chance. I'm going to go ahead and tell it. Why not? Because most everybody knows it. So Treville and a lot of us used to love to play pranks on each other. And so Treville comes to me one night in February, this is about 2014, and decides to say, hey, Paul George is coming back that night and we're going to record our little radio show. We did a little show back in the day. And he wanted to prank Paul by getting into his office, hiding, and jumping out at Paul whenever he came in and filming it. I said, Treville, we're not going to do that. But Treville still got into his office and still hid. And as Paul and I walked up, the door opened and Treville jumped out and Paul let out some expletives. <laughs> as he was right to do so because he was so frightened at what had happened. 
And so Paul and I decided to write the show, and we were just talking about how I was going to kill Treville. And so we did our show. We finished about 11, 11.30 at night. And this is when Father McIntyre was living with me, my first time as associate. So I walked back in with Paul into my house. Opened the door. I said, it's really dark. Let me go and turn on the lights. And just before I do, guess what happens? <laughs> Treville jumps out and scares me. Because, as we'll see, as the lights go on, Father McIntyre's there laughing, Treville's there laughing, and he filmed it too. <laughs> so Treville is just laughing. I said, Treville, did you film that? And, and he goes, oh, yeah, I did, dude. I said, can, can you show me the video? Oh, sure. So this is, this is when you know, videos are really becoming popular on your, your, your phone. And he's doing it, he's showing it to me, and I'm getting there. See, I got, I got a good shot here. And I said, Treville, do you want to know what I think of that video? He goes, what? And I just landed that knee perfectly, just like that. And dropped him straight to the ground. It was the best shot I've ever taken on anybody. And as a priest, it's the only time I've done that, but it was totally worth it. Father McIntyre's eyes got this big, ran upstairs, because he had let him in. And Paul and I just laughed at Treville. That is the best story of my time at the North American College. And so we're going to come back to that. Treville, Treville, Treville. Lots of other struggles, too. Not just funny ones, but as a priest, as you can imagine, I work with college students and parishioners, people dealing with their family issues, classes, exams, friendships, relationships, and a lot, as we'll see, Students struggling with perfectionism, this desire to be holy, to do the right thing, to make the perfect grades, but failing, and being so hard on themselves. And so the need that I and the minister have always had to teach young people to be patient with themselves, to listen to their problems, to do some teaching. Some on the course of the years, some famous talks, the, the red flags talk I used to give, and the talk to the young women that I gave a couple of times about how to avoid dating the wrong type of guy. And then, of course, really trying to teach them to show mercy to themselves and to others during their time in college. But it wasn't just students who did stupid things. It was all of us. A lot of times, older people would, ministers would, even me. A lot of the big frustration, as many of you may know, was students not showing up for 9 p.m. Mass. They'd come all the time, but I couldn't get them to extraordinary minister, couldn't get them to the lector. They wouldn't show up for anything. They wouldn't take the collection. I had to beg for people to do it. And a number of times, I'd walk down the aisle by myself, and you'd think it was the Imperial March. I was Darth Vader. I was so angry. You could tell tell the way I would proclaim the gospel, but I'll eventually calm down, wanting people to do the right thing, show up if you have said you were going to. Also, many fun events with our focus missionaries over the years, uh, won't get into all of them, but here's the best one. So we were at a staff meeting, I don't know, four or five years ago, and someone walks in, hey father, the police are here. I don't want to hear that, even though it's happened at times. And what's the deal? Well, the cop goes, oh, we got a report that there was an intruder on the roof. Again, the roof story. So I said, I have no idea what's going on. So we walked around the perimeter. We saw somebody, but we don't know who it is or where they went. 
So I said, I bet I know what happened. So I walk up into the upper room, and lo and behold, the focus missionaries are crawling out of the window from the roof there. I said, what are y'all doing? Oh, it was a real lovely day. We thought we'd go read on the roof. I said, but did you not think that other people would see you on the roof? Oh, no one could see us. We were just hidden, except for Nathan. He was in a tree reading a book. <laughs> and that's what they saw. The students saw it, reported the cops, because Nate was in the tree reading a book. Not, not a good decision, bro. We've had some student interns over the years make some mistakes, cost some money here or there by maybe putting advertising on Facebook and not taking it off after a week and leaving it there for a month. That was a problem, but we found forgiveness. And of course, employees, not perfect. Uh, you know, our good friend Paul, who we're making fun of. I, I forget a lot of stories, but I was reminded of one yesterday that uh, it was Paul's first week here, I was gone, and some of the students, one in particular, decided that she wanted to celebrate Shark Week. It was a student, who, the student who's an employee now who loves sharks. She's right there, Annie. And just decorated all the cafe with shark paraphernalia. And I walk at the cafe, and I don't know, maybe I did my coffee, I said, what is this? shark stuff doing over here? And Annie's like, it's Shark Week. I said, this is a place of business. We can't have all this shark foolishness here. Well, why did you think you could do that? Paul told me I could do it. And then Paul, poor thing, felt bad. First week of getting in trouble for letting you put sharks up on the wall. But I, for I forgave both of them. Sometimes, Paul, good friend, I, I, I got permission from Paul to tell these stories because I asked him some funny stories and most of them related to him. Sometimes saying things in groups they shouldn't say, insensitively, not thinking what he said. And of course, I can't, this is the number one thing that would kill both of our candidatizations. If you ever got the deleted outtakes from the Padre and Paul show of some of the things that came out of our mouths unintentionally. And even when people get older, see our students, tend to make mistakes. Here, here's, a, here's a great story that just happened last year. So we had a wonderful retreat for young women and, and just so touched and edified that some of our older graduates go and help. And they were out at a camp doing, working with young women and meditating and praying. And they had gotten there and they were going to stay somewhere that night at a benefactor's home. Nice benefactor's home. They'd never been there before, but they're out there in Evangeline Parish, and they kind of have the address of where they're going. And so it's dark, and they pull up, and they see this place. It's like a house over a garage in the back. And they said, whoa, it's the middle of Evangeline Parish. This must be it. So they go, walk up, open the door, take their showers, put on their pajamas, <laughs> lying in bed. Then all of a sudden, they see lights from the outside of the windows. And they begin panicking, what's going on? Is there an intruder? And you can see the lights kind of go all the way around and they begin panicking. They said, what is going on? Is someone here to kill us? And I think, if I got the story correct, 
that they decide to, to, to sort of be courageous and walk outside and say, what's going on? And they see a man, I think maybe the family with light, what are you doing here? Oh, this is where we're sleeping. You got the wrong house. Come to find out, like Goldilocks, they went to the wrong house and broke into this dude's house, got in the bed, ate the porridge, whatever. <laughs> Fortunately, they looked, the guy looked, he thought that, that they were breaking into the house. They looked at the car and saw a bunch of like Bibles and rosaries and girly stuff and figured that it was not anything of a bad intent. And then they cleared everything up. And so at least one of them is here today. So you can find out who that is later on by asking around. So even afterwards, go ahead, you make some mistakes. That's how it works. Um, let's see, I'm looking at my story here. Um, one of the biggest, though, fails, and it was really nobody's fault, was the original time that Cardinal Dolan was supposed to come here. We had planned for years. Got a private jet, flew up there to pick Cardinal Dolan up. I'm there with another individual excited to fly him down over here. I mean, we had spent all this money. We had had food prepared, brought in from New Orleans. The bishops were here. The media was here. And I thought to myself, man, I hope this doesn't go to pot. And then the next morning, I wake up, so excited for Cardinal Dolan, get to the airport, waiting for him. Doesn't show up. He's late. What's going on? And then I saw a secretary call me. I knew what had happened. Father, uh, this is some real bad news. Uh, Cardinal Dolan kind of got sick this morning, and uh, he's too sick to, like, fly over there. And this is, he's supposed to be down here in three hours. I said, well, what's wrong? Well, he's got stomach virus. Can't we just, like, give him some medicine and let him sleep on the plane? We'll give him a little bucket. <laughs> oh, no, no, but he's driving over there just to tell you he can't come. I said, you've got to be kidding me. And so... I made the worst phone call of my life to our development director, Mary Hernandez. Mary, I don't want you to ask any questions. I just need to let you know that Dolan's not coming. Make sure everything is arranged. Bye. Shh, hung up the phone. Maybe that's what I said. Then I called Jean, who is this administrative assistant. Jean, Dolan's not coming. I just told Mary, your number one goal is to make sure she doesn't lose her mind. <laughs> Goodbye. And of course, get here, and they did such a wonderful job of taking care of everything, but still, no one knew that he wasn't showing up until I walked up and said, womp womp, Dolan's not coming. But I at least got a video of Dolan who showed up, just stuff all over him, it was disgusting. I was so walked out of my mind that I think I used the word vomit five times in the homily. We almost had a puke fest at mass because of it. Everyone was worn out. The staff made me cook this delicious Italian dinner. I think potentially um, all the bottles of liquor that we were going to drink over the course of the next week were probably consumed that one night. <laughs> but it, it was worth it. But of course, God came through and Dolan came eventually and it was a really big hit. But I've got to say, though, telling these stories, that I am not immune to making mistakes. For those of you who've known me for the course of my time here, it happens quite frequently. I have a long sort of line of stories I could tell. 
Because the thing is, is, is I'm here all the time. As I said, as a family member, I look like a fool. I'm exposed. I can't hide the mistakes that I make. One of them was just uh, earlier in last semester. Uh, what's, I can't remember. Father Pelsay decided he was going to go hunting with some of his buddies. Well, he came back and he said, I've got to quarantine for 14 days because I've been exposed to COVID. I think I'm getting the story right. I can't remember. I was so angry it scrambled my brain. That he went hunting with his buddy. And then I said, did you know this guy was sick before? Well, kind of I knew he was sick before. And I, I got so angry at him. And I chewed him out on the phone and I said, you're going to find somebody to take these masses that you're missing. Well, coming to find out, I got the story a little jumbled up. Didn't really work out that well. And supposedly it was on another hunting trip and I had to ask for forgiveness. But he and I are still friends. Another story, and I, don't, I haven't told this one very often. Um, remember a few years back when Father Jacques Philippe was here? Father Jacques, just an honor to have such a holy man preach our mission, to be able to stay with us during, during the time here. And so I had, the last night he was here, I had to leave to go to a, a function. And, and Father Jacques said, do not worry, it does not matter. I'm very happy. And his little assistant was like, Father, on his last night of a mission, likes to drink a beer and watch a movie. Very little trivia there. And so I said, well, I have plenty of movies. What does he like to watch? He likes Westerns. He likes American Westerns. I said, I got plenty of Westerns for him to choose from. So I have a whole, a whole shelf of Westerns. And I said, let him choose. If you need any advice, just call me and I'll help you out. So about 20 minutes later, the, the, the little nun called and said, uh, Father, we, you have so many choices here. I do not know which ones to, to choose. Father, can I ask you the movies? You tell me what he should watch. And I said, sure. The first movie is Silverado. I said, that's a pretty good one. The other is uh, Pale Rider. I said, that's a great scene when he goes in there with the two by four. The third is the one that he really wants to watch. It looks very good. It is called Blazing Saddles. <laughs> How about he doesn't watch that one? All right, how about he stick with Pale Rider? So it's the time that Father Jacques-Philippe almost got introduced to Blazing Saddles because of me. Another story, I'm going to cut some of these out. I was reminded, I was sick one day at time. I had a sinus infection or something. And I decided right before Mass, because it was so bad, to take a bunch of Benadryl. So I don't really remember the details of this. Supposedly, I said the whole wrong mass. It was like one saint's feast day, and I told a whole other saint's feast day about these Romans urinating on a church. I didn't know what was going on, and they said, Father, you said the complete wrong mass. Well, at least you've got to hear a funny story. So even then, what am I going to do? I can't expose to everything. There's another funny story, but I don't have time to tell it. But one day, y'all can ask me later. It's about when I was in seminary, and me and my buddies had to sneak into a very rigid French monastery that we got locked out of at night. That was not a smart choice either. 
But anyhow, what does this all have to do with wisdom? What does it all have to do with the theme of our mission today? Some idea people have is that if we're going to gain wisdom, a deep insight into the ways of God, we say a prayer, we're going to become wise. We'll read the book of wisdom and we're going to become wise. But that's not the case. All of us know that if we're going to truly grow in wisdom, it comes from experience. It comes from age. In theory, you get wiser as you get older. And you learn much more from your failures than you do from your successes. The wise person is going to make mistakes, is going to fail, is going to look like a fool in front of other people at times, but they're not going to get discouraged. They're going to pick themselves up and continue to press forward. It's a basic rule we all know. If you want to graduate beyond tricycle and training wheels, you better be prepared to fall before you learn to get your balance. And so in the same way, if we want to be wise, if we want to be able to ride that bike, we're going to have to fall a few times. And so it's learning how to fail. The art of failure, as I've said before, and it's something that I've talked about a lot. This is St. Teresa's little way. The little way is not about doing small things with love. It is learning to be childlike, realizing how weak you are and how you will stumble and how you will fall, but to have confidence in the Father's love, that no matter how much you struggle, he sees your goodwill and he still loves you when you fall, when you sin, when you're ashamed. You're not there to judge you, to look down on you, to tell you you're a terrible person. He sees our goodwill and he raises us up, calling us higher to show us his mercy so that we can press on and continue to trust in him, to have confidence in his goodness. The problem is we don't know how to fail because we're so hard on ourselves. We make a mistake, even a small mistake, and we rip ourselves to shreds. It's like what I talked about earlier is the problem of perfectionism. Either A, we want to be perfect, or B, we're so afraid of failure, of looking like a fool before other peoples or somehow disappointing God. And so what happens is when we do fail, we're not perfect, we want to hide out in fear or shame. But that's not the art of failure. That's falling off your bike and giving up. We are going to struggle to live a virtuous life, to respond to God's grace, but we cannot give up. We've got to do our best knowing that sometimes we are going to fall because we're weak, but we've got to have confidence that the Lord can give us strength. No matter what kind of stupid mistakes we make, we've got to get back up and press on. Sometimes, as I've tried to show today and over the course of this retreat, that if we learn to laugh at ourselves, to laugh at the situation, it makes failing a lot easier. Now, many people say, well, that's good when we're young. Tell the college students they fail, they're good and mature, but what about when we get old? I thought about that a lot. I failed a lot as an older person. We all have. We've sinned, we've made mistakes, we've made errors of judgment. But it's like Drew Brees. He's been playing in the NFL for 15 years. Does that mean that he always wins? Does it mean that he always has a great game? No. 
even though he's one of the greatest of all time, he's going to have a bad game, even this late in his career, even though he's so good and he's played for so long in the same way, we will too. But Drew Brees can't get discouraged. He can't say, oh, I've had a bad game. I lost to Tom Brady. I give up. So that can't work that way. You've got to press on. And so in scripture, we all love St. Peter. Why? Because he's a perfect example of this. Peter had so many falls. The gospel is filled with it. But Jesus knew Peter's heart. He knew that Peter loved him and wanted to do the right thing. And Peter never gave up. But more importantly, Jesus never gave up on Peter. And through all of Peter's falls and stumbling and mistakes and looking like a fool in front of other people, Jesus conformed Peter to him. Peter learned the truth that he had to be humbled in order to become meek and humble of heart. Now think of it. All the stories we know about Peter after 2,000 years, Christians, instead of thinking that Peter is some sort of an idiot and shouldn't have been the first pope, all get hope from it. That if Peter could screw up as much as he did and Jesus could still trust him, then Jesus can trust us in our weakness. Even after the resurrection and Pentecost, Peter still didn't always get it. But as much as he failed, as much as we all fail, Peter didn't run away from Jesus, but became more dependent on him, expressed his love even more. He realized what St. Paul teaches us. It is in our weakness that Christ's power is made perfect. This is the path to wisdom. The wise person is the one who can fail, who can make a mistake, who could even sin, but is wise enough to trust in the Lord's mercy, wise enough to go back to him and to know how through those failures and grace they can achieve conformity to Christ. It's the wisdom that in order for us to win, sometimes we have to get defeated. We have to lose. That wouldn't be a good retreat or a good talk if I didn't mention Star Wars and Father Jacques Philippe and give a quote from him. So it's a video that I keep going back lately, particularly talking to people about their own imperfections or even sometimes vocations. It's that scene at the end of Empire Strikes Back when Luke thinks he can go beat Darth Vader. He leads his training early. And if you've seen, you've seen the movie, well, you know what happens. If you haven't, I'm going to spoil it for you. Luke's there fighting Darth Vader, but he's not strong enough. And Darth Vader beats him down finally cutting off Luke's hand. This is Luke, humiliated. He thought he could do it, but he lost. Jesus is not Darth Vader, don't worry. This is all symbolic here, sort of a metaphor. And Darth Vader reveals to him this deep truth. The deep truth, look, there's a failure right there, but we still love him. <laughs> See, we can laugh at it. The deep truth that he is Luke's father. And, and that, that scene where he goes, no, it can't be true. Search your feelings, Luke. You know it to be true. It's all of us. We, we cannot face failure. No, this is not how I'm going to become holy. By being defeated, by having to accept the fact that Jesus is Lord. And of course, what does Luke try to do? He tries to escape by falling down, but he can't. 
and he finally has to face Darth Vader and have to realize that he is his father. We can fight it all we want. We can fight God's love, but he is going to defeat us. And as soon as we learn to say, yeah, we're weak and we're imperfect, we can't do it ourselves, we got our hand cut off, the better we are to learn wisdom. And Father Jacques Philippe, I can give you probably 20 quotes from him, and this is the one that sums it up so well. Quote, we should beware of a form of desire for perfection that we may sometimes nurture. The desire for perfection is a good thing in itself, but it can be ambiguous. What do we really want? We'd like to be experienced, irreproachable, never make any mistakes, never fall, possess unfailing good judgment, and unimpeachable virtue. We all would love that. Which is to say, we would like to have no more need of forgiveness or mercy. No more need of that. We're going to be perfect all the time. God doesn't need to forgive us. No more need of God and his help. If at bottom our dream of perfection is to be able to manage without God, we are no longer on the path of the gospel. So, it, it's our failure. We have goodwill, we want to do the right thing, but realizing that we fall, this is the path to become more dependent on God, just as when we succeed. We're called to be saints, not superheroes. Saints are the ones who allow God to conquer them. We don't sin deliberately. We don't say, I'm going to go become holy. I'm going to go snort some cocaine. No. <laughs> we're not talking about malicious acts. We're talking about weakness. Weakness. And I've learned this too. I'm just giving stories of other people. I've learned it too. The past couple of nights, I've talked about myself as a priest's father a priest as uh, one who offers a sacrifice. But now today, looking at all this, is the priest who's the one who's human, who's weak, who fails, who makes mistakes, who sins. Like Peter, the desire to please the Lord, but aware of how imperfectly I do it. And hopefully after 20 years as a priest, I have become wiser. I'm still learning a lot every day. It is not easy to be humbled. And I can get discouraged too. People think, well, Father's always good. No, I can get discouraged too. But I am blessed with parishioners and students, those who really live with me over the years, who've seen my faults, who've seen me lose my temper, who've seen me make mistakes, who've seen me, say, mass jacked up with Benadryl and also five-hour energy, but can still be supportive, can still understand because they realize the intimacy of the family bonds that we have, that we should all realize that we have, is Christians and baptized into Christ. And every day and every week, I am still having to learn humility from mistakes and failures. It is a gradual process for myself and for all of us. We do not become perfect overnight. We become perfected. We have to have our imperfections burnt away. As I've been talking about earlier for the course of this Lent, the, the humbled, the heart contrite and humbled you will not spurn. Not humble, humbled. In order to become humble, we need to be humbled. And sometimes it can be very unpleasant, but we have to receive it. And so as a priest, my effectiveness isn't that I know everything or that I'm perfect or that I'm always virtuous. I make a lot of mistakes. I make the wrong judgments. Sometimes I have a bad mouth. I speak when I shouldn't. But I have done my best to realize that Jesus, although he was sinless, was like us in all things. 
And what makes the priest effective, as I mentioned last night, is not that he's out here over there, but that he is in the middle, willing to be fired upon. As a priest, Jesus could show empathy because he understood human weakness, he knew human nature, and so do I. I'm still learning a lot about it. And so, for me, looking at my time here, I talk about it, I've talked about it before, one of the biggest disappointments, the biggest disappointment, the biggest frustration, the biggest apparent failure is the fact that we work so hard over the course of the past seven years and I wasn't able to get the building project done. Able to raise the money, get the commitments for it, but because of factors completely beyond my control, those here who are familiar with the project know how beyond our control it was, wasn't going to be able to do it. And I was beating myself up for it, feeling like I had failed, I had disappointed, stressed. I mean, that's generally why I was grumpy from those five years in the middle. If I ever was grumpy to you or not in a good mood, believe me, it was because of that. And finally, two years ago, I've told the story, I was in California there for vows, and there's this very holy sister. I had a sister, I need you, she prays for things for me. Because I figured, well, God will listen to her. And I said, sister, please pray for me. I'm frustrated with this. I put forth this effort. I promised people we were going to finish this building. And she looked at me and she said, Father, she's very sweetly like sisters do, you know, David wanted to build the temple, but it wasn't God's will. Solomon had to. And, and literally that moment, boop, peace came. I knew that moment it was going to happen. I didn't know that I was going to be moving, but I was able to let it go. Maybe I didn't do, get the job done, but it's not my job to be done. In vain do the builders labor unless the Lord builds the house. What the future holds, I got no idea. Try my best. We have hope that the next guy will be able to come and I can have some part to play. But it shows, good is whether it be building a building or doing beautiful liturgy or giving a good homily or, or counseling people or doing spiritual direction or maintaining my temper, it doesn't always work. And as a priest, the issue is this. You have this ideal, what it means to be a priest, Jesus. And you come to realize, as much as you want, you'll never live up to it. There's always going to be this discrepancy. And that discrepancy can get you discouraged, can make you fall away, or it could be something that makes you more dependent on God's grace. And so we've done Ratzinger, we've done Star Wars, we've done St. Therese, and Jacques Philippe, and finally, we have to close with Hans Urs von Balthasar. I cannot <laughs> close this out without a quote from Balthasar, who puts it so perfectly. The priestly existence is definitively rooted in the gaping discrepancy between office, that's what I'm called to, and person, and thus in an ethos that stems radically from humility and is kept alive by the constantly renewed humiliations that manifest and actualize the lasting imperity between official dignity, the dignity the priest has because of his ordination, and personal accomplishment. There's always going to be this radical disparity. In his effort to be worthy of his office and, in the process, increasingly to sacrifice and submerge his subjectivity, the priest can expect as his only reward, the consciousness, not that he has become equal to the office, I've been equal to Jesus, but the call, 
but that the office has been able to succeed in him despite his inadequacies. Again, I am just beginning to realize that. That no matter what I'm called to, that there is that discrepancy that I'll never live up to. And the more that I don't live up to it, not intentionally, the more that I'll realize that I need to depend on the Lord and not my own strength. I'm hard-headed. It's going to take a while for me to figure that out. But let's take this whole quote. This is all nice, these wonderful reflections, Father, but let's just land the plane here. What is, if you look at the quote, that seems to be that there has got to be a connection between eating the feast and wisdom? We talked a lot about how we can give up our childish ways in order to gain wisdom, and then how actually learning from our mistakes, learning from our immaturity, we can gain wisdom. But what is the connection that is implied between the feast, the Eucharist, and our own weakness and mistakes. What I've seen in people who I work with over the years, that when they fall, when they sin, particularly in a very big way, instead of going to Jesus and asking for mercy, they go in the opposite direction. Like Adam and Eve hiding after the fall, they avoid mass, they avoid prayer, they avoid other people, they feel like others are judging them, they're just sort of basically putting their own conscious on other, consciousness on others. That's not the way we're supposed to do it. If you're cold, you don't go away from the fire. You get closer to the fire. And Jesus is a fire that is not there to destroy you. We are called to approach Jesus, even in our failure, our weakness, our sin, our guilt, and our shame. The woman caught in adultery. St. Peter, after all of his mistakes, the prodigal son, they went to Jesus. They approached the Father. And what happened was, we all know the Father didn't say, you disgusting person, I can't believe you did that. No. They came to repent. They came to ask for mercy, as imperfect as it may have been. And Jesus never rejected. He always showed mercy unconditionally. There's no need to fear. Even in our sinfulness, we are still called to come to Jesus and the Father. Because where else are we going to receive mercy? And we are all still called, even in our sinfulness and weakness, to be able to come into the church, to be able to come to Mass, and to take all of our good things and all of our bad things and place them on the altar. Jesus doesn't just want your good virtues. He wants your sin. He wants your garbage. That's what he wants more than anything. Because if you don't give it to him, he can't transform it. All of our failings every day, the big and the small ones. So we cannot be afraid when we sin to come into church, to come to Mass, humbled and contrite heart. Now, we can come into the church, which is the house. The prodigal son was forgiven. He was brought into the house. But like the prodigal son, before you can sit and dine at the feast, which means receive Holy Communion, you need to be cleansed up a little bit. You need to be reclothed in your dignity. Because he smelled like pigs and poo and all that kind of stuff. And so in the same way, we can come into the church, but before we sit and we eat, we've got to wipe our hands if we have grave sin in our soul. And we've got a confession. You've got to come into the church for confession. 
then you can approach the table to eat. So I'm not saying that if you're aware of grave sin, everybody's welcome. No, that's not, uh, I'm not a German bishop, all right? It's not how it works. You need to go to confession. But please come and receive the Lord's mercy. Then you can eat. No fear. Why? And this is where the gift of the Eucharist is, and this is where the wisdom starts. Jesus is so small and powerless. He's there under the appearances of bread and wine. Why would you be scared? He's not some crocodile or some god with thunderbolts. He appears a piece of bread. He's harmless. He's not going to eat you. You can eat him. And that's why he comes to us as a baby. Even weaker than a baby comes to us in the appearances of bread and wine so that we don't have to be scared. Small, but very, very powerful. And so when we are prepared to come to the table, we receive Jesus, but Jesus who is risen from the dead. We receive his resurrected flesh. And I've said this over and over again. You receive the crucified and risen flesh of Jesus. The flesh that is perfected. The flesh that is filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so when you receive the Eucharist, you receive Christ, but you receive an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who gives true wisdom. The Spirit who is true wisdom. Calling us to deeper repentance to knowledge of Jesus as our Savior and pouring his gifts upon us. That's why we come to the meal. That's where wisdom comes from. And the weakness of Christ in the Eucharist and our ability to come and find mercy and the Spirit there. But we go back to the first night to really tie it all together. It's at the tables we talked about, at the meal that the family finds communion because this is about our communion as the body of Christ in the church, not just here in wisdom in our parish family, but as the church. We are all sinners and in need of forgiveness. We're all in the family. Everybody's got, it's like that movie Knives Out. Everybody's bad. Everybody's got their garbage they've got to deal with, but they're all at the house. All right? We're all here. Everybody's got their own stuff. There's two types of people in the world. People have done bad things and everyone knows about it and people have done bad things and no one knows about it. We're all the same. And so we're not here to judge others. We're not here to think that others are judging us because we're insecure. That happens much more often. There should be no judgment. We should be willing to sit here and put up with one another because Jesus did it. He put up with the stupid idiot apostles for, for three years. If Christ can put up with us, we need to be able to put up with our brothers and sisters to give them the benefit of the doubt, to be patient. Because we are all called to the same table. We all find communion through baptism and the gift of the Eucharist. It's there that we're going to find that which binds us together and the strength to love one another. It's the gift of love. One last thing I can't finish without, and that is a little etymology. And this actually sort of blew me away. It sort of sums it all up in a way that I never even thought of before. Of how the Eucharist, dining, the body of Christ, communion, all ties in to the gift of wisdom. All ties in to the gift of wisdom. 
The word wisdom that we use is sort of the English translation of the Latin word sapiens or sapientia. Wisdom. Sede sapientia. Sede sapientia, the seat of wisdom. Mary is the seat of wisdom. What is, though, the deeper Latin root of sapientia? And I didn't know that. It is the Latin word sapere, which means what? To taste. So, to savor something. The savoir-faire, or something which doesn't have taste, insipid, all comes from the same word. And actually, it goes all the way back to the Proto-Indo-European root of S-E-P, which means to taste or perceive. We talk about seek means to spell, to taste, to be wise, are the same things. And so it is through the tasting of the Eucharist, the reception of the body of Christ, sitting and eating the food and drinking the wine, that we come to find true wisdom. Because Jesus is wisdom become incarnate. And doing so by tasting and seeing, we come to grow in wisdom. It's a lot, a lot to think about there. One last note. I mentioned earlier before tonight the blessing of seeing students who come and leave and mature from goofy teens to responsible adults. And I would take another hour to go down the list of the names of those who met here and have gone on to be married and have happy marriages and kids, the vocations, all the priests, the sisters that we've seen, so proud to be able to go to these ordinations and vows, many of them having great successful careers, having a real impact in the community. A lot of them, their faith life still very strong, active in their parish, serving on the parish council, teaching catechism, being involved in ministry. And so all of these names, but particularly the three musketeers that I mentioned earlier, as much as I could laugh at those guys where they were goofy, Mr. Tomlett has gone on to be a great fourth degree knight very active even today, still the Knights of Columbus. He's working for them and promoting the ideals of the Knights, and I'm proud of Jacob for that. I'm also proud that he didn't grow that beard back. Bradley, we kind of laughed at the other night. Bradley got married. Oh, and I loved it because I got to rip on him in that homily. He married Katie, he was over here, and now he's a successful engineer and has the cutest little girl and practices his faith. And the most amazing story the most amazing story, and some of you know this, Treville, the one who was here for seven years, is in the seminary, three years away from being a priest. If you go out that night and the moon turns to blood, you know Treville's getting ordained the next day. <laughs> and so I'm really proud of Treville. Now, of course, the funny thing is, when I made my announcement, First person I called when I got when I was able to tell people, Treville, guess who's coming? Goes <laughs> full circle. So I'll be teaching Treville. So just really excited about that. Actually, here's another funny story. So when Treville decided in the seminary, Paul and I said, we deserve something from his vocation director. <laughs> 
So we called Father Nathan. It's a joke. Hey, we put up a travail for seven years. We got to this point. You need to take us to Ruth's Chris. All right. So he did. It was awesome. <laughs> it was great. So we toasted to Treville and sent him the picture. So I'm proud of those guys. I'm proud of the ones who are goofballs, who wear shoes now, who don't play Pokemon in public, who know how to drive golf carts. And so let's wrap it up. We talked about Mary and these different sort of understandings of who she was. Today we look at Mary at the foot of the cross. Because why? The cross is the ultimate failure. Jesus did all this work. He seemed to be God, and there he is on the cross, dying between two criminals. It seems to be the greatest failure after all that he did. Imagine Mary there at the foot of the cross. Jesus didn't have faith, but Mary did. How is this going to make sense? Lord, be done to me according to thy word. I know I have a sword that pierced my heart, but this really stinks. But Mary never lost hope. She was there always at the foot of the cross. And so... If we have a home in Mary's heart, like we talked about the first night, then she's standing there with us whenever we have to carry our own cross. When we fail, when it seems to be falling apart, we seem that we can't do anything right. And so we'll close with a prayer. It's the collect. I've been doing it. There's this, this book, this Marian Missal, with all these different beautiful Marian masses. I've been taking the collect from each one of them. Today is the Mass of Mary at the foot of the cross. Two. There are two masses. It's not like Mr. Wrestling 1 and Mr. Wrestling 2. It's a whole different mass. There's a wrestling little comment there, Mid-South. We'll do that. We'll close with this prayer and this asking during this period of Lent as we look to the resurrection, as we go through these 40 days that Our Lady would be there to journey with us. Lord God, you decreed that the mother of your son should stand by his cross, suffering with him. Safeguard in your family the fruits of your great work of redemption, and in your goodness make them grow daily more and more. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.